16 and one half pounds of United States currency will fit into the same type of Jansport backpack that you see thrown over the shoulders of high schoolers and college kids as they hustle back and forth from class. Are there any cokeheads out there listening? Okay, lower the straw, step away from the powder just long enough to pay attention. 16 and one half pounds converts to 7.5 keys or 2,142 eight balls or 7,500 grams of cash. 454 grams equal one pound or 2.2 pounds per key for the 16 and one half pounds of dollars. It works out nicely that each bill weighs exactly one gram. So the 7.5 keys or 7,500 grams equates to exactly 7,500 United States bills. And you thought the metric system was only good for drugs. For you would-be accountants out there, dollar amount depends on denomination, and the denomination largely depends on where you get the money. Visit a high-end strip club, and after all the lamp dances, overpriced drinks, and bare-naked ladies, you'll likely find a stack of $2 bills in your pocket that you, my friend, are going to have a hard time explaining to your significant other in the morning. A bank teller will hand out larger bills for a larger withdrawal, whether by pistol or pen, unless instructed differently. Grocery stores, gas stations, and department stores hand out a variety of dirty, grimy, crumpled bills. But if you are like me, the only denomination in your bag would be United States $20 bills. The amount would be $150,000. That amount in that denomination in a bag identical to the one I've described, minus the cost of the Grand Slam breakfast I had at Denny's, the prepaid cell phone and backpack I'd secured at Walmart, and the $1.25 auto trader I'd purchased at the 7-Eleven, sat next to me in the back seat of a Dallas yellow cab that was bound for some, I don't know, remote Fort Worth suburb. Welcome to the first episode of Anglerfish, where we examine the darkest corners of our online lives. I'm your host, Brett Johnson. The United States Secret Service called me the original internet godfather. Now what does it take to get a title like that? 39 felonies, a place on the United States most wanted list, an escape from prison, and I built the first organized cybercrime community, Shadow Crew. Shadow Crew was a precursor to today's darknet and darknet markets, and it laid the foundation for the way modern cybercrime channels still operate today. This first season of Anglerfish tells the story of my rise and fall as the world's first internet godfather. It's a fascinating story. You'll learn how cybercriminals think, how modern cybercrime came into being, and why it's so successful and hard to stop, and you'll learn how I was able to turn from a life of crime to using the knowledge I acquired as a criminal to help protect others against the type of person I used to be. This episode, The Run. Friday, May 19, 2006, Dallas, Texas. I had sent the United States Secret Service a high and hearty fuck you. I didn't hide my identity when I'd stolen from ATMs earlier in the morning. In fact, I'd made a point of giving each and every ATM camera I met a broad smile and a stiff middle finger as I withdrew $150,000 of the government's money. I wanted Special Agent Jim Ramsburn of the Columbia, South Carolina field office to know it was me. He was the agent who had yanked me out of a cell in Charleston County to threaten me and my family. So, hey, Jim, 
How are you? Hope you're doing well. Fuck you. I remembered agents Jim Ramsburn and Bobby Lee Kelly seated across from me in an interrogation room in Charleston County Detention Center. That was four days after the Secret Service had revoked my bond for failing a polygraph test. They had asked three questions. Had I warned anyone about the investigation? Had I been in contact with the New York Times? Had I accessed a computer outside of the United States Secret Service offices? Well, I had failed all three questions and my bond had been revoked. Secret Service let me stew in the Charleston County Detention Center for a week before coming to visit. Now Jim sat there, this smug look on his face, holding this Miranda waiver. Bobby Lee was seated off to the side, silent. The betrayed look on his face was telling me they knew I'd been screwing them over for months. How much they knew, I had no idea, but it was probably enough to warrant that look that Bobby was giving me. Jim laid the waiver on the table so I could see what it was, but he kept his hand on it, not yet giving it to me. Now before we start this, Jim said, I just want to say, you're going to tell me everything you've done last six years. I'm going to make it my mission in life to fuck over you and your family. Jim sat forward and looked at me. And I'm not just talking about this case. Once you're out, I'll hound you the rest of your life. Jim slid the Miranda waiver over to me, big smile on his face. Now, you want to talk to me? I sat there, looking Jim straight in the eye, reliving the last 10 months being employed by the United States Secret Service. I had broken countless laws from inside their offices. Identity theft, tax return fraud, credit card fraud, more. I'd ratted out friends and associates. I'd set others up encouraging them or instructing them on how best to break the law so the government could make more arrests and so I could serve less prison time. I documented with the New York Times, without permission, most of what went on from inside the Fed's offices, even down to the Secret Service computers being hacked and how agents had chose to watch porn instead of watching me all day. I had acted at the behest of the agents in charge to destroy a Canadian undercover operation and then been instructed to cover it up when Washington had flown down to ask what the hell their monkey was doing. I had sat there daily to be teased and ridiculed, forced to listen on how I was going to prison when the investigation was over how I was in love with a whore, how I was getting off light. I had lost everything that mattered in those 10 months. Elizabeth was gone. She was the reason I came out of quote-unquote retirement and gotten captured. She was also the reason I had agreed to work with the Secret Service. Gone because some fuck had hacked into the Secret Service computers and posted her information in history. Gone because I couldn't keep dealing with the barrage of whore comments from the agents. Gone because I didn't know what else to do. My sister, she had disowned me, not because I had broken the law, but because of my insistence on being with Elizabeth. I hadn't spoken to Denise in months. She wouldn't take a phone call. I'd tried constantly to call her, and she'd never even pick up the phone. Friends? Most ended our relationship when the papers reported who I actually was and what I did for a living. I had told them I was a fraud consultant. I just didn't tell them what side of the fraud equation I was on. The ones who did stick around left after being spoken to by Secret Service agents. No idea what was said to them, but I never heard from them again. Ten months and I had betrayed everyone I could. And I'd lost everything. And now this asshole across the way from me was saying he was going to fuck over my family for the rest of my life. Wasn't enough I'd brought pain to the ones I'd loved and to people I'd never met. Wasn't enough I was going to prison. Oh no, now this guy was going to make sure it never stopped. I continued looking Jim in the eye and dropped all pretense of being nice. I don't want to talk to you. Bobby's mouth dropped open and Jim's face flushed. Jim jumped up and headed toward the door. Well, fuck you very much, Jim said as he stormed from the room, Bobby in tow. You guys have a nice day, I said as the door clanged shut. And that was the end 
of the interview. Two weeks later, Charleston County Judge ruled the Secret Service had revoked my bond improperly. My bond was reinstated. I was only state indicted at that point, not federally, so I walked out of the county jail. Someone forgot to tell the Secret Service I was back on the street. And I was pissed. I was pissed over Ramsburn threatening my family. So I quickly adopted a new philosophy I like to call, if you're going to fuck me, then you're going to have to find me. I called Kimberly. She was a stripper I'd met after Elizabeth left. I'd given her well over $60,000 by this point and figured I could get some quick cash from her. I told her I needed $1,000 and met her in a Lowe's parking lot in Augusta, Georgia. Then I went on the run, May 5th, heading west on Interstate 20. I arrived in Dallas May 7th, 2006 with a little over $800. Found a hotel beside the interstate at $179 a week, paid for three weeks. Then I set out trying to make money. If what I was going to do didn't work, I was in a lot of trouble. May 8th, I walked into the sales offices of the Easy Paisano prepaid debit card. The card was targeted at people, especially Mexicans, who wished to transfer monies from one family member to another across international borders. The Easy Paisano card could also be used as a direct deposit card, accepting payroll deposits from employers or government benefits like Social Security, tax refunds, SSI, etc. I fed the owners and his sales team a lot of bullshit in a deep southern accent about my owning a construction company that employed illegal immigrants that I needed to pay, but you know how they are. They swallowed it with a smile. I walked out with a stack of anonymous debit cards without paying for them and without showing any identification. The next few days were in front of a computer screen at FedEx Kinko's, four miles from my hotel. Spent $12 an hour accessing online state death indexes, EIN directories, federal tax software, and I committed fraud upon fraud. By the time yesterday, Thursday, May 18, 2006, rolled around, I was busy as shit, worried to hell, and down to my last $6. Food? I had a half loaf of Wonder Bread and a package of Oscar Mayer bologna in the mini fridge. The 97 Dodge Dakota I'd driven from South Carolina had a quarter tank of gas, and I couldn't drive it much longer if I wanted to remain free. If cash didn't come soon, I could either turn myself in or go live under a bridge. Meet Brett Johnson, located between a rock and a hard place. At 4 p.m. yesterday, I received confirmation from the Internal Revenue Service stating funds were scheduled to be deposited the next day. My last $6 went into the gas tank of the truck. If money credited, I'd need the gas to hit ATM machines, and I didn't want to pause my withdrawals to fuel up. If no money came, $6 wouldn't matter. From 4.30 p.m. yesterday to 4 a.m. this morning, I watched the clock and prayed that fate be kind. Would the money actually land? I'd hit this debit card company before with tax return fraud. There was a good chance they'd recognize the fraud again and shut it down before I could withdraw the funds. Picture myself under a bridge. Or if I were lucky, an overpass. Maybe I could charge a toll and snack on the bones of wayward travelers. I could be like the Billy Goat's Gruff, except the only difference being I'd steal my victims' identities and use them to furnish my overpass. Friday, May 19, 2006, 4.30 a.m. I'm not broke anymore. Instead, I'm stacking 20s into a Walmart backpack as fast as the automated teller machines can spit them out. I spent five hours skipping from bank to bank along strip mall areas, plucking cash from every ATM I could find. Now I had the money to run. And run I would. Consequences be damned.
After five hours of withdrawing all that cash from ATM machines, I went back to the hotel, slung the money over my shoulder like Santa Claus, walked in the hotel room, and started counting how much I had had. I ended up with $150,000. And I spent that morning preparing to run, which brought us to that Dallas yellow cab headed for that remote Fort Worth suburb. The destination was an address given by the owner of a white Jeep Cherokee advertised in the auto trader I'd picked up. I was looking for a vehicle that would be nondescript for the part of the country in which I was traveling, one not so old as to have serious mechanical problems, but with enough years and mileage to not stick out and instead to blend in with the rest of the traffic. Plus, I needed to purchase from a private party so I wouldn't have to transfer title and registration. The Jeep in the ad was exactly the type of ride I needed. My call to the owner, Tim Trent, was a verbatim repeat of the trader ad. Oh yeah, 2000 Jeep Cherokee, only 37,000 miles, four door V6 AC, power brakes, AM FM cassette, new tires, perfect condition, $9,000, what a bargain. And I was on my way to purchase the Cherokee. Of course, Tim, he didn't know my plans to drive on his plate in his name. And of course, I didn't tell him and I didn't care. I needed to forego the title and registration process in case a cop swung in behind me and decided to run the plates on the vehicle. Much better for Brett Johnson if the Jeep came back registered to Tim Trent instead of me. So, hey, sorry Timmy, but que sera, sera. I arrived at the destination. It was a one-story brick ranch-style home. This balding, pudgy fellow, obviously Tim Trent, sitting on the porch. The Cherokee was parked in the yard with a for sale sign on the windshield. And I knew just by looking at Tim and the house that he would take $7,500 cash instead of that posted $9,000. And I would be driving the Jeep back to the hotel. The cab's meter read $42 and some change. I handed the cabbie a wad of 20s, easily two to three hundred dollars. Hey, 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 I can't take this, said the cabbie, holding the cash out a little puzzled. Sure you can, especially today. I stepped out of the yellow cab, shut the door, as the driver said, thanks, I hope everything works out for you. I walked toward my fate and quietly said, I doubt it. As you can probably tell, Brett Johnson used to be an asshole. I was egotistical, conceited. You know, I knew the end was coming. I knew it was. But in order for you to keep breaking the law, and I found this out when I was serving time in prison, you have to adopt this philosophy of fatalism. Whatever is going to happen is going to happen. Because if you, if you really sit back and consider that it's coming to an end, that you're going to serve a lot of time in prison, that everything is going to go south on you, there is no way that you can sit back and actually continue to break the law. You're too worried about it, too nervous. So you have to adopt a philosophy of fatalism. I'm still trying to reconcile that with my life these days. I don't know. I don't know. I do know that, that I screwed over a lot of people. I know that I was not a good person. I know that those that I met, I ended up making their lives worse, not better. Take Elizabeth, for example. Even to this day, I still think about Elizabeth. I guess I thought that um, she was a stripper. She was a stripper that I met after my wife. I was married for nine years. And she was a stripper I met after my wife left. 
and she had a lot of trouble. I'm not sure if she was abused or what. I, have, I had no indication of that. I know that Elizabeth was addicted to cocaine, that at one point she was, she was prostituting herself for cocaine. I found that out after I moved her in my house. And uh, I just kept thinking, I guess I thought at some level that if I could fix her, I could fix me. And of course, I didn't do that. And to this day, it, it haunts me that, it haunts me that I may have made her life worse, not better. That, that knowing me didn't improve her lot in life, but it just made it worse. I have no idea where she is today. When I got out of prison in 2011, I still remembered her phone number and I texted her. And she said she didn't want to talk to me. That's the only thing, I, the only thing she ever said was that. It bothers me that, that I may have affected her life in such a way that it made it much worse than it already was, instead of making it better. I think that it, I think I may have, may have thought that if I fixed her, I could fix me. See, I was naive at that point. I didn't understand that, that you can't fix other people. You can only fix yourself, and you're damn lucky if you can fix yourself. And I, Lord knows I had not fixed myself at that point. I'm still trying to fix myself 13 years later. Of course, Denise, she had disowned me. She had dis not because I was breaking the law. No, no, no. Denise disowned me because of Elizabeth and my, my wanting to be with her. I don't know. I, I have trouble with that today. Today I still have trouble with that. And you'll get to hear from Denise in, in the next few episodes. I have a lot of trouble reconciling my past with what I'm doing now as, as a legal person. Back then, you know, back then I used to justify my crimes. Back then I said I did it for my family, for my wife, for my stripper girlfriend. I believe that justification. That's part of it. Is as a criminal, you have to justify who you are, what you're doing. You have to be able to justify that. If not, your conscience, unless you're a sociopath, your conscience will, will eat you alive. So I did justify my crimes. I justified it by saying I was doing it for the ones I loved. I justified it by saying, well, I'm, I'm just stealing from banks or governments. They're not losing, people aren't losing any money. Complete and total bullshit. But that's what I did. That's how I justified everything. I, and I believed those justifications. It took, it took a good two and a half years behind a prison fence. And it took my sister disowning me for me to come to terms that the reason that I broke the law was not because of my family, my sister, my wife, my stripper girlfriend. Now, the reason I broke the law was because I chose to break the law. That's a hard pill to swallow when you've lived your entire life blinded by your own justifications. It's a hard pill to swallow that the, the damage that you've done, not only to yourself, but every single person around you, was because of your choices. But that's exactly what happened. Law enforcement, honestly, when the Secret Service hired me, I just was not in a position to listen to them at that point. They were good people. They were good people. They tried, they tried to help me. And I just was not listening to that. My entire, my entire mentality at that point was to do everything I needed to do to be with Elizabeth. I just wanted to be with her. And see, that's, just, that's a justification there. But my entire mentality was to keep breaking the law. I thought, I thought I could get away with it. It was still a game. I thought I could beat the good guys. And I'll clue you in on something. The bad guys never win. Never win.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Anglerfish. I appreciate it. If you like it, please subscribe and drop me a line saying hello. Hello is always good. You can reach me direct at brettjohnson at anglerfish.com. That's brett, B-R-E-T-T, Johnson, J-O-H-N-S-O-N, at anglerfish, A-N-G-L-E-R-P-H-I-S-H dot com. Please tell your friends about us. Rate and review the Anglerfish podcast wherever you can. In the next few weeks, we'll be launching Season 2 of Anglerfish, which will examine the darkest corners of our online lives and what you need to do to remain safe. Please email me questions, comments, concerns, personal stories, and any topics you might like to hear discussed. That's brettjohnson at anglerfish.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Brett Johnson. Stay safe, stay secure, and stay vigilant.